This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are talking about the 1996 Pantera album, The Great Southern Trend Kill. Indeed we are, and this was, of course, a listener choice. This is an encore episode. If you recall, uh, before last episode, we ran a poll on our Patreon page, and then last episode I selected a random track uh, using random.org from a a random nomination from that poll. And this is what came up. Pantera, there were three people nominated Pantera, actually. Uh, two people nominated this album and one person nominated Cowboys from Hell. But this specifically was from a choice by Simon Lake. Um, Neil Roberts was the other listener who nominated this album. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Simon sent us a message through Patreon, actually, when this was announced. And he gave me permission to read it out. So I will do that now. He says... Hi guys, so pleased the random number generator picked my choice with The Great Southern Trendkill. I picked it as I recently finished Rex Brown's book and it brought back some good memories listening to the album over the years. During the 1999 eclipse down at the beach, I played Suicide Note Part 1 and it made a weird event even more ethereal. I should have switched off the stereo quickly afterwards though as Part 2 suddenly came on and killed the moment for everyone. He says, I also met Pantera after a gig in Lyon uh, when I was a student uh, in 2000. I asked Phil a question about their set afterwards and he looked at me for a bit and in his Texan drawl said, hey, you don't sound like you're from around here. Dimebag Phil and Vinny were, I think he means Dime, oh, Dimebag, comma, Phil and Vinny, sorry, were friendly. He says, but Rex was a really grumpy bastard, just like in his book. (laughs) Not Uh, surprising. He says, love Thrash It Out, guys. Best podcast. Thanks, Simon. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, I didn't get the impression Rex was a grumpy bastard from his book, but I don't know. <laughs> That's just me. I mean, I, I can't wait to talk about this album because I think it's, it, whatever your feelings about the album musically, it is a fascinating album too, yeah. to dive into for discussion. So thanks to Simon for for nominating this, but um, yeah, well, I feel like that's kind of the what they cultivated as in as their sort of, uh, you know, professional wrestling image was the <laughs> group of grumpy badasses, right? <laughs> right, well, badasses, but I don't know about grumpy. I never kind of, I mean, certainly from Diamond Vinny, I never got that impression. Um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's just me. Um, incidentally, this is, in total, overall, for all the many years now that we've been doing this, this is episode number 69. Oh, nice. nice. I. I feel sure that Pantera would approve, you know? <laughs> yeah, wow. 69 episodes. That's crazy. Yeah. Hard to believe. But here that. we are. So, yeah, and, and it's like six years or something we've been doing it now as well. It's nuts. Um, uh, one other thing I want to say before we get on to talking about the last episode, uh, just a, a bit of blatant self-promotion. I have a new Silencion album coming out. Uh, for Sawain, Halloween, All Saints Eve, whatever you want to call it, uh, which will be released um, about two or three weeks after this episode is released, like I say, in, in time for October 31st, um, which I've been working on for a while because I've had a bit of downtime, and uh, it's very, very spooky and Halloween and sort of horror-ish, and the centerpiece is a 15-minute track, which is a, a, what I'm calling a moonlit drum ritual. It's... Uh, it's a lot of fun. I so. love that. And <laughs> uh, and I love your albums because they make such great writing music. And so having another one, I'm working on a, a, a short story right now and, and a couple other things 
sort of in the hopper. So uh, I am very much looking forward to having a new soundtrack to write to. Now, and especially if you're writing horror, because like I say, it yep. is very much sort of Halloween themed. Um, so yeah, be a lot of fun. Anyway, so blatant plug over. Uh, yeah, let's talk about the last episode. And that was uh, my choice of um, Machine Head album, the Through the Ashes of Empires. Yes, it was. Uh, and there was a lot of great feedback on this album. Uh, David said, my opinions about Machine Head in 2021 are quite complicated. The soap opera of the last few years has left a pretty bad taste in my mouth. And I'm not going to get into my feelings about Vote uh, joining the band. They were pretty much my favorite true metal band for a solid couple of decades. And I agree with Anthony that there are no bad Machine Head albums. And this is definitely one of the best. Uh, hearing Brian to react, react to it, listening to it for the first time is such a lovely thing, and it is a much-needed reminder of why I love this band in the first place. He went on to say a lot more about that as well, so you should definitely go to the Facebook group. But um, yeah, I think that's always cool, right? When we, either when one of us is listening to an album for the first time, or uh, probably more often, so many people who are listening to the show might be checking out an album for the first time. And, yeah. and when it's an album that you love and you hope that people find something in it to like, it's always pretty rewarding there. Um, Joe said, quick note, like Brian, I had not really listened to Machine Head much before for different reasons. By the time they got known, I was busy having kids and had moved jobs slash cities. And so didn't hang out with hard rockers much anymore, except my brother. And he wasn't into this stuff um, after 80s metal, I had picked up Pantera, White Zombie, Prong, Typo Negative, Sepultura, Death Angel, Primus, Soundgarden, etc., but not these guys. Uh, and we dropped Cable for a while, so I may not have seen them on Headbangers Ball. So th- there was at least another person, and I suspect others out there, where they just kind of missed Machine Head yeah. in, their, in their sort of uh, listening history there. And uh, Todd said, I wasn't surprised to hear Anthony's comment uh, about their procedure for recording episodes. Oh, he was when we were talking about like uh, oh, scripted versus non-scripted. Yeah. <laughs> he said, I, I had always assumed each episode was unrehearsed. Uh, it did bring to mind something I have wondered about, T.O. Do a- Brian and Anthony do a full listen through of each track during the course of their discussion, or do they just rely on the notes? So if you're not in the Facebook group, that question came up of, um, you know, how sort of uh, scripted is the show ahead of time? Do we rehearse it ahead of time? We do not. Um, Do we listen to each track as we discuss it, or do we go off of our notes? And the answer is that we go off of our notes. So even though Anthony cuts clips of different songs into the episode, we have listened to it separately and come to it with our notes as we talk about each track. It's all it's all smoke and mirrors, folks. It's all fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, back to the professional wrestling theme, right? Yeah, um, I but mean, it's look, real it, to me. It, it takes us, you know, we we normally spend two, sometimes two and a half hours recording every episode. Anyway, if we also listened to every track while we were doing that, it would take pretty much all of a day to get through it. So, uh, yeah, that's just not realistic, unfortunately. No, and like for me, I will uh, when we assign the homework. I am listening to that album periodically over the time between recordings. And then as we approach the next recording that weekend, because we often record on Sundays, just in case anybody's wondering. And um, that weekend, I give it some heavy listens and usually another final listen right before we record, which is what I did for um, this one today as well. So uh, just a little trivia there for you. Uh, Danny said it was hard not to be into Machine Head down under since they seemingly came out as support to everyone from Slayer to Slipknot. 
Uh, also, their video clips were enough of a staple on Channel 5 Metal Show that, or is it Channel V Metal Show, that when the video for Imperium dropped that references three previous videos, it was kind of, yes, this album is not new metal, but we don't apologize for it. Um, big shock to discover a song I hadn't heard exists on the U.S. version. Finally, from the start of the podcast, Descend to the Shades of Night has, has been in my head as the prime example of an album ending track. Yeah, oh, my, as I said on the episode, it's one of my, I mean, it's my favorite track on the album, and it's one of my favorite album enders for sure. Uh, Tordeth said, my big comment on this episode is the aspect of their touring and live shows. I've been lucky enough to see An Evening with Machine Head. Uh, no openers, just three hours of live music. Amazing. Yeah, um, we do, I don't think we really talked about live. Do we? Have you seen them live? I have not seen, well, I would only have seen them live like on an Ozfest or something like that, only if it was like a festival right. bill. And I don't think in the Ozfest or if it was, it was probably Ozfest because yeah. I'm also thinking of like the Mayhem Festival, but um, maybe, but not off the top of my head. <laughs> I'm the same, to be honest. I like, I know I haven't been to a Machine Head show, you know, where they're headlining or something, but now I'm trying to... I, honestly can't remember if i've seen them yeah as you say like an all day or even supporting somebody else i don't think i have which is a bit of an oversight given how much i like them but uh but yeah i don't think i have man my old man memory is just uh <laughs> no good anymore i know and you know what's crazy is because a lot of these shows now the tickets are digital i used to i have a ziploc bag here at my house of just like Stubs upon stubs upon stubs of tickets and, and, um, going back to like the earliest shows that I went to and that's not, uh, it's harder to do that nowadays, which is unfortunate. Uh, Dave said the last time thrash it out made me reconsider a band I had previously dismissed as not for me. Um, oh, he said last time, uh, can Brian and Anthony make me do that two times in a row? The answer is sort of when I first heard machine head back when burn my eyes came out, I was like, Nope, not for me. And I've thought that ever since, so I never bothered to listen to anything else. I felt that way after my initial listen of this album, too. There were parts that I liked in various songs, but parts I really didn't like as well. Track 3 was probably the one I liked best. Listening to you guys chat, though, is where my opinion changed. I still don't think Machine Head is for me, but I respect that they're good at what they do. That's fair enough. Absolutely. Uh, Let's see... Uh, Art said, after listening to this episode, I was kind of hoping that maybe what I heard might pull me in further, but unfortunately, I wasn't pulled in further. I am in the same boat as Brian in that I stopped listening to new music around the same time as he did. I moved from Florida to Mass to be with my girlfriend, now ex-wife, when we first met, and so I wasn't really introduced to new music and kept listening to the stuff I liked. The album that has uh, The album has that new metal sound, which doesn't really do anything for me. As it was said, metal sort of died around that time, and bands like Korn did nothing to sway me um, from keeping uh, to keep listening to new metal. Although I'm sure that I must have kept buying music from bands I already knew, like Slayer, etc. Uh, anyway, look forward to another Pantera episode. Um, yeah, it's interesting of like when these albums hit in people's lives and sort of where they were at in people's lives, right? Because for me, like mm-hmm. I graduated from college in '96, and so. But that period of like 92 to 96 where I was in college, I was really listening to a lot of what my roommates were listening to and getting exposed to some new stuff, but also like just continually revisiting old stuff. And then, um, yeah, definitely has picked up more in, in past years. But I feel like now 
at this point in my life, it's kind of cool to go back and find a pocket that I didn't fully explore before or a band that I didn't fully explore before and really get to dig into their discology, which I think or discography. Like I really um, enjoy that now, like really getting into. And I think it can be even especially when it's from that period where we you know where all of us were sort of really intensely into this music it's almost inconceivable you think how can i have missed this i was listening to loads of music i was really you know music was my life during that part of of my life and yet somehow i completely missed this band or this era or this subgenre or something it's happened to me as well and yeah it is a bit weird you think how how did i miss that but you know, it's, uh, you can't listen to everything, can you? Well, and a lot of times it's that one album that happens to be your exposure to them and it doesn't hit with you. Right. And you're like, ah, yeah, that band's true. not really for me. And, um, I mean, even with the big four, there are, whether it's, you know, Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, Megadeth, there's a lot of people who at least one of those bands are like, ah, I never really got into them. Whereas for me, I felt like it, all four of them were almost inseparable where like I, not that I had to be familiar with all of their um, music, but at the same time, like I didn't, I, I just felt like if an album from one of those bands was coming out, I was getting it. You know what I mean? So it was like, I, I was, I was just constantly plugged into what they were doing, even if I didn't um, love it, you know? So, but, but that's what I mean. It's almost to you, the idea of not being into all four of those bands is inconceivable. Whereas, yeah, you know, for somebody else, it might be another band or, you know, there, totally. might, there might be another band that somebody else was into at that same time that you just completely missed. Uh, or, yeah, as you say, heard one record and went, yeah, that's not for me. Um, but that, like, Venn diagram also, uh, like, as I think back on it, my best friend that I grew up with who we, you know, would go and buy every new album that came out and sort of, you know, make copies for each other and stuff like that back when we were in high school. We, even at that time, had very different tastes as well. Because, you know, he was more into um, the hair metal stuff and had a much less of a tolerance for any of, like, the thrash metal stuff that wasn't, that didn't contain a lot of melody. Right. And so, for me, but I really liked the punk aspects of it. And so, there was a lot of bands that I was into that he wasn't into. But our our sort of overlap of our Venn diagram featured so many bands that we always had a lot to kind of connect with on there. But, the, but yeah, so it definitely... Um, you know, stands to reason that there are, there are bands that you just kind of miss along the way. Cause, uh, cause whatever you heard from them didn't grab you. Um, but yeah, the interesting to see and, uh, tying it up here, Don said machine head was a band I had only heard of, but not listened to until last year. I did a deep dive last year on my podcast and it was, uh, a very pleasant experience. I agree with Anthony that there are not any bad, Machine Head Records. I haven't latched into the latter era stuff as much as the 90s stuff, but I think I definitely need to revisit those. Yeah, I think, I mean, Don's a fair bit younger than both of us, so I think it's a bit more understandable if you're, you know, if you weren't necessarily around or weren't engaged in the community when a band has its breakthrough album. And, I mean, much as we said about Machine Head, you know, they kind of seem to have had several resurgences over the years. But Burn My Eyes was, you know, the big splash album. It was a, a you know, front page news on most of the metal uh, press and what have you at the time, a really big debut. Um, so if you missed that, 
because you you may literally have just been too young <laughs> to be listening to metal and reading the press and what have you, uh, then I think we can forgive that. Yeah, so great uh, conversations as always on the Facebook page. And um, there's been some really great conversations lately about like new albums that are coming out, new videos, new stuff. Like I'm just continually in love with how awesome <laughs> the conversations and community are around people who listen to the show. So thank you yeah. again for everybody I've, always keeping the conversation going, whether it's about an episode or in between episodes. And about gigs as well. Some people, you know, are now starting to gigs are starting to kind of happen again. Um, you posted uh, pictures from your first gig in a long time. Yeah. Which was uh, literally my first gig in 18 plus months. Right. So it was a, uh, it was an outdoor show out in Boston. It was the Megadeth and Lamb of God show that was supposed to happen like almost two years ago now. I think it was supposed to happen. Maybe it was two years ago now. It got postponed twice in any case. Wow, but um, yeah, going out, um, it, it was it was an interesting experience. I don't know if I'm ready for indoor shows yet, but that's going to be tested soon because that's coming up uh, pretty pretty soon with again more rescheduled shows that were supposed to happen a year ago two years ago like black label society and uh, there's another one that i have tickets for but um but the outdoor show like i uh, you know even being fully vaxxed and, and wearing a mask and stuff like that there was still that um weirdness of kind of being out with that many people at the same time and stuff like that but the once the music started it was Man, you, I knew that I needed that again. I knew that I missed that so much, but holy crap, like once, once the music started, it was like, I have really, really missed live music. And so, yeah, it was great. I've heard a few people say that, not necessarily just about gigs, but just about sort of getting together, you know, with friends in general, uh, you know, at sort of outdoor parties oh, or whatever. Yeah. And people say, cause you know, some people literally haven't been to any kind of social event in 18 months. And yeah, I've, I've had friends do that uh, and go to, yeah, sort of a garden party or something where, as you say, everybody's vaccinated and masked, but it's still a bit, you know, still taking precautions. And yeah, come back saying like, oh, I'd forgotten just how much I actually kind of need social interaction. Well, and like every part of that rituals, you know, because like the drive from where I am to Boston is an hour and a half to two hours, depending on traffic. And so the buddy that I went with to this particular show is one that I used to work with in a previous job. And I occasionally drag him to metal shows with me and he's a really good sport about it. And we hadn't been together in probably over two years because we don't work together anymore. And so like just that whole catching up on the ride down to the show and then processing everything on the way back from the show, like every part of that whole, um, you know, ritual was, was really something that I missed. So yeah. Um, but yeah, another, as you mentioned, another great thing that people are sharing on the page is shows that they're starting to go to now. I was just going to say, I think that that's something that's, that is actually sort of missing. And I think maybe people forget how important it is with, you know, doing sort of the live streaming gigs and the virtual gigs and what have you, which obviously right now for some bands, that's the only option and I'm not knocking it at all, but People maybe forget that part of the ritual of going to a gig is going to the gig and then coming home from the gig. And that is part of the experience, you know, the the anticipation on the way there and then kind of reliving it and processing it on the way home is part of the experience of going to a gig. And 
I think maybe some people have forgotten how important that is as part of the experience. Uh, because obviously, when you're just watching a live streaming gig on your computer at home, there's nowhere to go. You're already home. (laughs) Well, and and it also, you know, is a big reminder, not that I need to be reminded of this, but I'm sure this rings true with a lot of people who listen to the show that this ritual, right, that you and I are doing right now of getting together and talking about music and, and things like that. In some ways, we've been more fortunate over this pandemic in that we were able to keep this going. Right. This and is how we have always these opportunities, anyway. exactly, yeah. and have these opportunities to to uh, talk about music and process and and things like that. And um, yeah, so it's uh, it doesn't replace uh, that that live experience and all the cool things that happen around that. But for me, it's definitely been something that has helped me navigate. You know, almost two years now uh, by by being able to connect with not just you but our whole community and continue to celebrate music and and underscore the importance of it in our daily lives right right i mean imagine if you could no longer go to gigs and you didn't have this as well yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah crazy anyway so yeah there is light at the end of the tunnel everybody says so uh, hopefully we'll all be (laughs) we'll all be getting back to you know gigs soon enough um that would be that would be nice in the meantime then uh let's talk about this album, let's talk about the great Southern Trend Kill. Whew. Uh, this album could be called The Breaking of Phil Anselmo. <laughs> yeah. That could be a, 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 which is why I think it's such a fascinating album, too. Honestly, I kind of wish it was. Like, my least favorite thing about this album is the title. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm excited to, to kind of talk about this. Uh, I went back and listened to our previous discussion or parts of it on... Uh, vulgar display of power and of course at the end of the last episode where we ended up uh randomly choosing this album you know i talked about my the fact that i wasn't a big fan of far beyond driven and that is like your favorite (laughs) pantera album so um so this one is super interesting because for me uh the the uh, i'll call it the anselmo trilogy is power metal uh cowboys from hell and Vulgar Display of Power. That is mm-hmm. the trilogy of Anselmo albums, if I'm picking three that I feel are the best um, of of that era. And adding a fourth one, it would be uh, this one as opposed to, if I had to pick a fourth, this one as opposed to Far Beyond Driven. And one of the things I had said at the, at the end of that Pantera episode back then was that I felt like after Vulgar Display, they were really leaning into what people had responded to uh, about them and so they started to get a little bit samey for me as opposed to going from their hair metal roots through cowboys from hell to vulgar display of power there were still elements that i felt made them more well-rounded um there were still elements of that hair metal era that was part of what they were doing and i think by the time we get you know, even to far beyond driven but most certainly here those are gone like that that's really funny to me because I don't disagree, but just slightly differently, like slightly, you know, sort of from a different angle. Uh, Like I, yeah, I love Far Beyond Driven. It's, it blows my mind that you don't like it. (laughs) Um, It is my, it's my top uh, Pantera album. Like for me, it's um, Far Beyond Driven is first, then Vulgar Display, and then Cowboys and this, a kind of joint third. And I will say, 
that if you'd asked me a month ago, I would have said Cowboys was third and this was fourth. But having given this probably more intense listening time than I ever have before, actually, uh-huh. uh, to this album over the last month, it's gone up to joint with Cowboys now. I, I like it more now than I did a month ago. Um, having, yeah, as I say, put that kind of intense listening into it. But part of the reason that I like Vulgar Display especially and Far Beyond Driven is the the changes and the evolution now as you said they came from the hair metal and they kind of went through the groove metal thing and kept up until far beyond driven kept some of those sort of hair glam uh what you might call traditional influences far beyond driven there pretty much weren't any of those that's true but what it did have for me was that sense of evolution it still doesn't sound like the previous record it sounds like they're evolving they're experimenting there's quite a lot of experimentation on far beyond driven and i thought the songwriting was really good as well and then this album it's still a good album like i say i I do like it but it feels almost like a step back it feels too much like vulgar display of power to me this album um you know it feels almost like a retread and i think i don't know if that's because of the situation in the band with the personnel in the band uh, or a deliberate choice, or what? I mean, they've said. I read quite a few interviews with them after this was, and watched some interviews that were conducted after this was released in preparation for this episode. And they, it was definitely a response to what they saw as a kind of softening of metal. And they didn't. They only named new metal, but this album also came out two years after Load. And I wonder if that was part oh. of the reaction. You know. Most definitely. Um, And what I find so interesting about that is it's hard for me to get over the hypocrisy of this band because they're a hair metal band. And so when they have an album where they are shaming the entire music industry for its fascination with trends and its fascination with... um, you know, and how people sort of changed who they were in order to be successful at the time. Like, I just find that right. and then you can really hard to get over metal to vulgar, to because you are a hair yeah, metal yeah. band. Yeah. <laughs> and they have as many hair metal albums as they have as non hair metal albums. And, and no one should ever forget that. And so, and I went back and listened to those too, and they're still great, especially like I am the night and, um, uh, power metal or uh, power metal is phenomenal. Um, it's also kind I, of so, funny given the, Pantera themselves kicked off a massive trend in metal. Think of all the bands in the 90s who, after the huge success of Vulgar Display, suddenly cut off their hair and started wearing jean shorts and flannel shirts and jumping around the stage like Phil Anselmo. Well, and then you have bands like Exhorter who would say that Pantera copied their sound, right? And so they're... I just like... The the persona that this band created in the vulgar forward era and even in some of Cowboys, but definitely I think vulgar was the pivot point for that was this 100% authentic, absolute badass, the strongest survive, you know, um, kind of culture around their music and it's pro wrestling. I mean, that's what it is. It's like a pro wrestler who gets a new persona when they get 
picked up by the WWF, right? <laughs> Where they, but they used to wrestle in the independent circuit and they were, um, you know, Brutus the Barber Beefcake and now they're the Road Warriors or something like that. And so it's just fascinating to me that, and, and I think why it stands out to me on this album is because I really do think this album is the breaking of Phil Anselmo. This is in many ways, um, at least from my reading of the lyrics and and sort of uh, listening to to the songs over and over and over again, is his despair and rage over the fact that his drug addiction has broken him as it's it's kind of broken his soul as a person and there's elements of him railing against that and raging against that and then there's elements of just absolute despair over what he has become and so every time those rage moments happen or every time a song comes on that is about being a poser and you know not uh being true to yourself and you know just uh following the trends or something like that it, it to me um, it's at, at the same time the most authentic thing that Phil has ever done and also the most fake thing that he's ever done because the the charade is over now. Um, they're not, like, he's not that guy anymore. And um, it, it, and it's fa- to me, it's fascinating. Like, this is, this is in some ways the most authentic, definitely Phil Anselmo album, I think, because he's going through it. As you listen to this album, these lyrics, he's going through it and um, it's wild yeah. to listen to. And it's kind of this back and forth of like just complete. That's why that suicide note part one and two is is like to me the heart of that whole album because it is that it, it, it it's the despair and the rage at the right, same time. The, the combination. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They're, they're definitely his most personal lyrics, you know, it, it's mm. in the sense. I mean, he on previous albums some of the lyrics were personal but a lot of them were couched in metaphor and uh analogy and what have you whereas much less so on this album and he was more open as well that's the other thing again reading the press for you know around the release of this album he was a lot more open in interviews about the fact that these lyrics were (laughs) yeah uh were about him and about his struggles and what have you um which is ironic given that a lot of when he's not raging against about drugs and uh, against his addiction on this album he's raging against press attention and the media yes uh, <laughs> which he also hated um yeah i mean it's it's one of those it's a tale we've seen so many times isn't it you know this was released uh, far beyond driven was phenomenally successful um you know it followed the regular pattern of vulgar display of power was successful and it broke through but because it made them so popular, it was the album following that, i.e. Right. Far Beyond Driven, that went into the Billboard charts at number one and sold the most copies. Because people bought it sight unseen, but exactly. based on the previous album, yeah, for sure. Exactly so, yeah, which is a very familiar pattern. And yep. then it was so successful, and they there was so much attention on them, and yes, Phil's addiction, possibly as a result of that success, got so bad, uh, you know, his descent into heroin and opiates, that, yeah, you get an album then on the other side like this which is well which was recorded entirely separately and yeah they claimed at the time that they wrote it together he's yeah i I pulled a couple quotes i'm not sure if i believe that given everything else that's come out since about how separated he was from the rest of the band i'm not sure how much i believe that he was supposedly present at all of the writing sessions at dimebag's house you know 
Right. And we should mention that that because this came out in uh, May of 96, it is the 25th anniversary of this album this year. So very oh, timely, yeah. actually, that we're doing uh, this album. So there's been some pieces where they've done uh, 25th anniversary sort of lookbacks at um, things. So an article on Blabbermouth was, you know, um, was about the 25th anniversary. So I, I believe it's from this year. And Phil was basically saying, I was in a really dark spot when we did that record. And what I remember about doing it was pretty ugly, but I was surrounded by beautiful things. I was in New Orleans. I was at Trent Reznor's studio. Um, and Terry Date was there, who's their producer. And Terry would come fly out to work with me. It was the first record I did away from the band. But he goes on to say there, I was present throughout the entire writing of the songs musically because I'm the lyricist. So therefore, shaping a song and getting into it and that kind of stuff. But I did my vocals um, over there. And so that's the piece that you just mentioned about whether how true that sort of element is. Um, yeah, it's probably just, up for debate. And I wonder what Rex's book says about it, because I haven't read um, Rex's book. What, but. what I remember of it, I haven't, re- I didn't reread it uh, prior to this episode, but what I do remember Rex saying in that book about this this period was that Phil was completely fucked up. Like, and there was no, everybody knew that he was just an absolute fucking jambles, except when he turned up to record. Um, You know, Rex, and now Rex and Phil are probably, you know, I mean, obviously the Abbott brothers are both dead now, but even at the time, Rex and Phil were kind of, you know, uh, closer than Phil was to any of the other members of the band. I always got that impression. And uh, so, you know, he he does defend Phil a little in the book. You can tell that some of it is kind of a little defensive, but he is also quite open about the fact that Phil was fucked up. Uh, But he says that, yeah, to his credit, no matter how fucked up he was, he always turned up to record on time. He always did his vocals, you know, in a couple of takes. He didn't fuck around in the booth. You know, that was the one part of the job that he managed to stay professional throughout. Because God knows he didn't manage it on a lot of the live uh, performances. But, you know, recording for the records, that was the one place where he did keep it all together. Now, as I say, again, is that a hundred percent true? I don't know. You know, Rex claims it is, but I mean, Christ, you know, ha- literally half of the people who actually knew the truth about this are now dead. So right. it will never know the truth for sure. There was another article in uh, Loudwire where, and Rex was quoted in that as well, but just, they were kind of talking about the recording process for that. And um, the article was saying that since Anselmo wasn't there, they didn't know what he was going to do with his vocals. And so they didn't know even if what he was doing vocally was going to sort of match where the music was. Yeah. Uh, and, and it went on to say that while Dime was used to tracking his leads after Anselmo's vocals, he didn't have that luxury with the great Southern trend kill. And Rex said... Uh, Dime used to bring in a riff tape and say, okay, here's what we have to work with. And that wasn't happening as much, he said, during the recording of this. Uh, the riff tape was wearing out, so we'd just go in there and all start playing. Um, and he said, it's funny because kids go, Great Southern was the best record you ever put out. And I go, how could that be? Because it happened in such an off-the-cuff way. Listen to the bass part behind Floods, straight off the cuff. He said, that was straight on the floor. We didn't even go back and re-record it. So, and, but I think, so I think that speaks to kind of overall in this album. There is a more, there is a more raw feel to, I think, feels every more aspect of this album. It definitely feels more raw and loose. Uh, yep. than previous albums for sure. Uh, cause yeah, the whole thing was 
written, jammed, recorded, whatever you want to call it, in Dime's home studio, apparently. Yeah, because they were just writing there and he was recording anyway. And then when they fuck it, let's just record here (laughs) rather than rent a studio. I mean, they still got a proper big recording deck, you know, a big board in because by that point they... I mean, it was like Metallica around Black Album era, wasn't it? It was like right. money Money was no object. They could get whatever they wanted and the record company would give it to them. So, you know, it's not that they were literally recording onto a Tascam 4-track or something, but it was the basement, I think, of Dime's house, um, which I'm sure was a very big house, but nevertheless. Uh, so that's bound to change how you record things and your attitude towards the recording. And as a result, yeah, you're right. This is a very raw record it's looser in places than some of their other records but it still sounds good you know the oh, I mean, definitely. T- terry date did a fantastic or whoever his engineers were did a fantastic job actually getting the sounds because you wouldn't know you know if 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 somebody did, if they hadn't admitted that they recorded it they called it chasing jason studios for some bizarre reason uh at dimes house but if they hadn't said that that was actually just dimes home studio you'd never tell yeah, I mean Rex's bass sounds it monstrous sounds great, on this album. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really does. Like they, um, and then like vocally, I, I, just the vocal performance on this album is, and that's so, the one that was done at Trent Reznor's studio in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah, dude, it's so raw, and the mixture of spoken word over you know lyrics that are sung, the sort of ambient grunts and growls and stuff like that like it, it is uh, to to me like super atmospheric this yeah. album but it like i can't it's like watching a you know an accident and you can't take your eyes off of it, it, it to me my attention just continually gets brought back to anselmo's performance on this album because it's just like he, he just seems so in the throes of it you know what i mean well and if you want to see that just look at the video to drag the waters like Phil is filmed separately to the rest of the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't if I because I rewatched it and I'm pretty sure that he doesn't actually appear with the rest of the band at any point. And I don't think you even see where he is because he's barely lit. He's in like you know some black background shot. Uh, so there's no context for where he is at all. You know he could literally have been shot. You know in in a basement or something. Um, and he looks terrible i mean he just looks fucking dreadful uh you know again he's sort of he's performing but it's a really lackluster performance you know this is not the the energetic muscle-bound warrior image that he had in something like walk or mouth for war you know you think of those uh videos and he's like this yeah you know yeah, as I said, the, the metal warrior image, and th- that is not what you get in the video for Drag the Waters at all. Well, yeah, and I mean, and so I just keep thinking about that in terms of the what that does to him mentally, right? Like, because you've worked so hard to create that. Like, wh- whether that's a persona, whether that's the, you know, the pro wrestling stuff or whatever, like, you've put so much effort into creating that, and you're now in a place where that has completely fallen apart on you and that's i mean just the the depths of sort of and i think you hear that in his performance and i think you hear that um in a lot of the the lyrics here is just like that to have your strength taken away from you 
um when it's been such a signature part of your yes it's it's who you are right you know it's um yeah i mean it it is it's just wild to think about so but yeah i mean uh, my my I, i have like a section in my notes that i call like general thoughts and the first one was all of the fun is gone and the party's over like that's that was my first note that I made <laughs> Shit, to myself. Yes. Like, no, that's, like that's really insightful, man. Because yeah, you're absolutely right. On all of the previous albums, yeah, there was an element of like, hey, fucking, this is great. Oh, we're on top of the world, yeah. and not with this album at all. And it was all. I mean, there was obviously like all the the you know we're the strongest, we're the metal warriors, all that kind of stuff. But there was always an element of fun there, and that pretty much goes back through every previous uh, yeah. Pantera album period, where where um, you know definitely more so back when um, you know Vinny and Dime in the in the hair metal days was there was a lot of cheesy lyrics and and sort of um, you know uh, college humor type of stuff and and things like that. Where, but here there's none of that yeah i mean even even on far beyond driven you had things like five minutes alone and becoming which are those sort of triumphal metal warrior stuff but there is that sense of yeah they're also fun songs and and yeah you're right on this this is like it's all awful um everybody's turned against me um i'm falling apart Uh, you know i'm i don't even recognize myself and everyone's betrayed me that's kind of those are kind of like the you know the themes of the and also you all are a bunch of posers and um you know we're just we're just tourists (laughs) in this um uh in in who you said that you were and you know the you'll now you've moved on to whatever the next sort of trend is and so it's just a lot of like vitriol but also like despair and it's not an album that you like there are definitely other Pantera albums where like you listen to them to lift you up. You're not coming to this album to <laughs> this album is a journey. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there is aggression there. You can throw it on when you're doing a workout or something like that. But this is this is a journey and the journey is down. It isn't up. I was actually thinking of workout albums. I'm not sure I'd even want to put this on during a workout, to be honest with you. And you're right. The previous albums, absolutely. You'd put those on during workouts and kind of like, yeah, you know, do I mean, your best vulgar display of power has to be this. maybe the, if there's a number one workout album of all time, right? That's got to be <laughs> top five of workout albums as yeah, vulgar display. Right. But really, I'm sure Pantera <laughs> would be up there with like all time you know, probably four out, out of the five top spots, like yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you're you're right in terms of this one. It's not like man, I really need to. I'm not motivated today. What this can is I not... throw on to really motivate me? <laughs> it is not the great <laughs> trend kill. Like, yeah, you're not pumping iron to this one, going yeah, it feels good, <laughs> right? Like yeah, I feel great about myself. This is really me. I feel like I'm getting stronger. Um, no, this is like, what the hell has happened to my life? And, you know, why did everybody abandon me? And, um, I'm so disgusted with myself because, and that's why I feel like in some ways it is the most authentic, certainly from a lyrical standpoint, because he's naked, I think he doesn't spare himself. Right, exactly. In that's these what I mean. Yeah. Lyrics, like it, it, that's the thing. Like, there's plenty of to go around where he's, you know, he is, uh, he's calling out a, a lot of other people. But there is um, a lot of self-loathing of, as well. A ton of self-loathing, and I think it's um, which song is it that I think it's towards the back of the album. 
but he's like, F the world and and don't forget about me. Like, basically, like, th- hey, throw me into that conversation as well. I'm, uh, you know, I'm just as bad as everybody else. Um, and so, yeah, he doesn't spare himself. In oh, no, this. that's that's the second, that's Warner of you're thinking of. That's the yeah, second yeah, yeah. track on the album. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fuck the world for all it's worth. Every inch of planet Earth. Fuck myself. Don't leave me out. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, as we said, he's not, he doesn't spare himself um, in a lot of, in a lot of these songs, even though he's not pointing at himself saying you, they are about him for yeah. sure. And, I, and sort of what he's seeing himself become. Have you read anything from Trent Reznor about this album? Cause I looked and I couldn't find no. any comment from him about this album or the recording, you know, Phil recording at his studios. And I, and those studios don't exist anymore. I think that either they were destroyed in the Katrina floods or he closed them down anyway. Um, I would love to hear, for, because obviously a lot of that stuff, what you're talking about lyrically, are also themes in Trent Reznor's work. And yeah, I, I would sure. love to know what he thinks of, you know, how this album went down and, yeah, the lyrical content and stuff. Uh, well... Yes, and you mentioned themes in other people's work. Like a, the, another irony of this album, again, calling out the trends and calling out, um, you know, the changing times and all that kind of stuff. To me, there's such a huge Alice in Chains vibe on this album oh, as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and not not uh, definitely in no small part due to the the heroin and opioid and pills, you know, piece of that. But there is a a sadness which is present in so much of Alice in Chains music that always is kind of lingering no matter what album or song you're listening to from them. That definitely, I think, permeates this record. And, and musically, I feel like some of it is aligned to the the sort of tone of Alice in Chains. Oh, could Suicide Note Part 1 sound any more Alice in Chains if it tried? Absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I would even throw in some Stone <laughs> Temple Pilots in there as well. And they're, right. they're yeah, yeah. Um, you know... Uh, the what was the album that came out in ninety six too? It was the um, songs from the Vatican gift shop. I, that one uh, came out that year too, I think. But um, yeah, interesting. So there's just just that's why again I feel like, and we haven't even talked about the individual songs yet. But that's why I feel like this is a fascinating album to dig into because really of all of this stuff that we're talking about right now. Like, I mean, just like where the band was at, where Phil was at, where they're at musically, what the musical landscape looks like right now. Um, but it, it definitely in no way, shape or form has that triumphant feel of their previous music, even though a lot of the elements of their previous music may be present on this album. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely correct. Well, let, let's do that digging in then. So just the, for the record, yeah, 1996 release, there are 11 songs. It's 53 minutes long, which is about average for a Pantera album. Um, you know, some are a little bit shorter, some are a little bit longer, yeah. but that's kind of, that's not unusual, uh, in, in itself. And yeah, let's dig into it. So it kicks off with track one, the great Southern trend kill. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not the wicked swear. 
which begins with just absolute top of your lungs screaming, um, <laughs> you know, and just like complete aggression. Like I, I feel like the, the kind of, uh, message in this song is try putting this on the radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like pure uh, in terms of like pushing back against the trends. Right. And pushing about, you know, it's a big middle finger to everything that, um, in their eyes, most likely music was becoming at the time. Right. It's just like, and, and the lyrics are just kind of vomited forward. Like it is, it's just, pure rage yeah um it's the only album that starts like that as well to the best of my recollection i don't think any of the other albums start with that kind of with phil literally just screaming and some blast beats every other album starts with i mean far beyond driven is probably the closest but even that starts with a riff and then phil singing not right. blast beats and screams <laughs> um yeah, it's as you say, it's a real middle finger to what they perceived anyway as the direction of the metal community at that time. I mean, I love that uh, it doesn't quite start with that because you first you hear his intake of breath. You hear him go <gasps> before he screams yeah. at the start, which is a real, you know, they could have edited that out. They did not. Sure. It. That's a deliberate thing to keep that in. And I like that. That's a nice touch because it kind of humanizes it a little bit. Uh, reminds yeah. that, you know, there is. Even because at the time as well, 1996, not that many bands outside of death and black metal were doing vocal styles like this. You know, it still hadn't quite taken over metal in the way that it did over the next 20, 25 years to the point where it's now completely normal. This was still a pretty extreme vocal style. Um, yeah. And I'm just just to pause on that for one second, just to, for a little mm. bit of context of like what else was coming out in to, 1996 at the time. Roots from Sepultura, uh, Evil Empire from Rage Against the Machine, um, Metallica's Load came out that year. Time of the Oath from Halloween, uh, Antichrist Superstar from Marilyn Manson. Uh, what Wait, else was Load '96? I thought it was '94. It says 96. Oh, wow. So this came out the same year as, good Lord. Man. <laughs> yeah, June 4th, 19. It came out like a month later. Oh, wow. Oh, June okay. 4th, so 1996. So, no, this can't have been a reaction to load then. I'm completely um, mistaken on that. I thought it was. Wow. Into the Unknown Merciful Fate, uh, Filthy Pig from Ministry. Let's see what else we got here. Def Leppard slang, which I know is a staple for most of our listeners here. Um, <laughs> so of, of those that you've named, literally only Sepultura, they're the only other band that were doing these sort of, regularly doing these sort of harsh vocals that were also, you know, hugely successful. Um, so yeah, as I say, it's just this style. I mean, not just musically, but vocally as well, just was not really that mainstream at this time it would take another 10 years or so for it to become well i mean you could say well, argue, slipknot it, maybe helped it become really mainstream and, and what we certainly can say is that in terms of the mainstream whatever was on mtv or whatever was on the radio or something like that this this song is not that <laughs> you know like this yeah. <laughs> this this song is like uh which again to me it's just like that huge you know uh, middle finger in every way. I mean, the cool thing is like you do in terms of like the straight up aggression, you also get the groove comes in the chorus, right? Yes. Um, which I think is really a nice, it's almost the opposite of what 
um, you know, you get in a lot of Pantera songs, right? Which is like the groove is in the, is in the rhythm. And then maybe the chorus is a little bit more of a punch in the face here. It's like almost reversed, but then like the song turns into a very sort of Southern rock um, solo type uh, situation. And then it gets like really sort of loose and dreamy Mm. towards the end of it. But all of it, which is saying like, again, go ahead and put this on the radio. Like what part of it is, you know, yeah. what part of it is the, <laughs> is the radio part that you get to like, e- even if like you can wrap your mind around the first, you know, two thirds of the song, then it gets like super loose and dreamy at the end of it. Like that's not, that that's not a radio edit. Like, so I just feel like the whole thing is, is just like them basically not only railing against the trends lyrically, but essentially being like this is we don't care about any of those parameters yeah you could maybe play like tw- the 20 seconds of the chorus on the radio right and, right. and that's about in, it in like, like a promo spot and be yeah. like hey pantera <laughs> dropped a new album and you play that part and people are like oh yeah that sounds like pantera yeah and then they play the record and get their ears pinned back um i mean it's we've talked we talk all the time about statements of intent in first tracks of yeah. albums. And this is definitely that, you know, it starts with a bang. It is heavy as hell. Uh, you know, it, and the lyrics, as we've said, kind of, even though this is more of a complaint about other people than himself, it's still uh, in the same tone. And there are other tracks on this album, which are similar in lyrical content as well. It really does kind of prepare you for the rest of the album. Right. I do um, like that the ending bit as well, though the the sort of semitone chord changes. It's it's nice. I just wish that it didn't fade out. And I know I bang on about this, but especially on an opening track like this, really, you couldn't find a better way to end it than just fading out. It's a bit of a you know bit of a cop out for me. Yeah, and just again lyrically, buy it at a store from MTV to on the floor. You look just like a star. It's proof you don't know who you are. Uh, there, this one, the lyrics are pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of metaphor going on here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as you mentioned, statement of intent, right? Yeah, for sure. So let's get on to track two then, War Nerve. Yeah, not not a happy song. This one, no. <laughs> um, I think the the standout that people, from a lyrical standpoint, um, and again, this is where he goes right at the media. For every fucking second, the pathetic media pisses on me and judges what I am in one paragraph. Look here, fuck you all, and and that's th- not even the song. <laughs> Right, that that is stated, like, make sure I'm really clear on this so that anybody listening to this, like, hears my words very clearly. 
Um, yeah. So, and again, lots of aggression in this song as well, but this is also the one where he, you know, says, um, fuck myself. Don't leave me out. Like he's, he's, um, also talking about himself here, but yeah, I would say like continues the aggression from the first song of the album. It does musically though. I think, I actually think this is musically a better track than the opener. Not that this would necessarily have made a better opener, but I just think it's a better song from that point of view, because one of the things that I always liked about Pantera was how, like in a lot of bands, the bass and drums are in lockstep and then the guitars, you know, kind of doing its own thing. Uh, but part of the reason Pantera worked so well and the whole groove metal thing works so well is that, you know, on a lot of their stuff, all three of the musicians are absolutely in sync in complete lockstep. You know, the drums and the guitars are following the same right uh, rhythms and structures and what have you. And there are quite a few parts on this album where that's just not the case. I mean, the opening track yeah. being one, I think they don't really feel quite as connected as they do on other Pantera records, but on this track they do. And that's why I bring it up here because on this track, they feel a lot more in sync and connected. Uh, and I think it makes a big difference to, to the grooviness of the track. It feels tighter. Yeah. It feel, absolutely yeah. feels tighter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like so, that, that when he's kind of speaking and dimes doing that kind of spiraling, uh, you know, type of riff there, it definitely, uh, well, the, it, it definitely the, comes together well. Yeah, I mean the the bit where Phil's yeah shouting at everybody, you know, uh, fuck you all and what have you. That's kind of, I mean, that is more like their experimental, which they always did, you know, those weird experimental string bendy bits. But the uh, the main verse and the pre-chorus, yeah, they're very groovy and, like I say, yep. very sort of in lockstep. Um, I do kind of wish that we had more. There's a riff in the middle eight where it really locks into a a proper full on groove for about the last 30 seconds. Yep. And I, I wish we had more of that in this song. Um, cause I think that's musically more interesting than what they did in the chorus. Um, but still, I, as I say, I think this is, you know, just looking at it objectively, I think is a better song than the first track, even if, uh, great Southern train kill is a better opener because of that statement of intent, you know? It's almost like a, at this point of the album, it's like, but we're still in a Pantera album. You yeah. know, like it's it, it's <laughs> yeah. like a reassurance of like, we're still, you know, if the first song kind of, you know, knocked you back a little bit, we're still, you're still going to get that groove. You're still going to get that, um, you know, uh, that Pantera feel um, in this album. Well, and that only intensifies, I think, with track three. So let's move on and talk about that. Let's drag the waters. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, my first note was like more traditional Pantera song. That was really the first note that I that I made about this um, third one here. But like this, um, you know, again lyrically, I, I think is now where we're really. So the first couple songs is like rage, right? And now we're starting to get into the sadness the sadness and the despair and the, the sort of uh, just disgust right with um, not only like what these drugs do to people, but also like what they're doing to him. And um, you know, there's a lyric in here, let it move in, got you thin and got high and your money went. And so did your friends. Um, And that's just like uh, one example of, but, but, but basically like, and it's funny because you talked about earlier how Rex would say that, um, you know, he was a complete mess except when he showed up to record, right? And when he showed up to record, like, he pulled it together and he did that. And this song is about, like, looking deeper. Yeah. Like, whatever whatever's being presented to you on the surface, kind of look beneath that and what you're going to find is a lot uglier and a lot um, – there's a lot more going on there. And I think that really, this song absolutely embodies that of like, you know, once you start digging deeper, you're not going to like what you find. Yeah. The whole point is drag the waters more yep. to go deeper and find the truth. Um, yep. I mean, this is so obviously it was the single, the first single from the album. And uh, how could it not be? Um, right. Because as you say, it's the most traditional Pantera, Pantera track on the album. It's also, in my opinion, one of the best tracks on the album and not just because it's traditional, but because it is just genuinely a, a great song. Um, yep. I mean, as you say, the lyrics are full of despair and all that, but it is a great song. Um, it, it's another one. I mean, this really feels like something off a of vulgar display to me. It's got that kind of walk feel to it. Yeah. Uh, but which again, you know, as we said, a more of a traditional Pantera song, but it is just, it's also just really good. Uh, it's nice to hear Rex holding things down during the solo. You know, that's, again, traditional Pantera thing. You expect it, but it's nice to get it. If I have the only criticism I really have of this song is that I think it's too long. Um, yeah. I don't recall. And it gets, like, more jammy as the song yeah. goes on, too. Yeah, yeah. Was the single version edited? Was there a radio edit? I don't That's a recall. great question. Because it feels about a minute too long for me. Every time I listen to it, I'm like, really? You know, it, it, as I say, it's the obvious single, but I'm like, was this whole thing released or did they edit the solo down or something? I don't know. Um, but that is, uh, that, that applies to a lot of the songs on this album. Like, I think there's a lot of them that could be, you know, a minute shorter and would benefit from it. Um, well, and I think that goes to the whole like rawness and the way it was recorded and all that kind of stuff is that it, it doesn't feel like it got that final edit pass. Yes. Yeah. Right, where they went down and said, you know what, let's shave 15 seconds off of this and it's going to be a much tighter song, which I think you had in Far Beyond Driven and Vulgar Display. You definitely got, like, the songwriting was tighter and the, you know, just, like, trimming the fat, whereas these songs, almost all of them, are left to breathe for better or for worse. Well, and if some of them were literally first takes as well, if some of what you're hearing on this album is literally the first time it was played because they were jamming or whatever, then you're going to get that. Yeah. As you say, you don't have that reflection that you get when you're recording, you know, when you're tracking a guitar piece 20, 30 times to get it right. You you think about it a lot. (laughs) 
right. <laughs> you know? Um, but if you're not doing that, and if you're literally just taking the first uh, recordings, the the rough, raw recording from something, then I suppose, yeah, it's inevitable that you're going to get it. It is a shame, I think. I, I honestly think this album would benefit from, as I say, several tracks being a, a bit shorter, a bit punchier. Um, but then, you know, it's, again, it's just not that sort of album, is it? It's would it, it would I think it would make the album better, but to the degree, like, would it also spoil something? Because this is a very swampy album, for want of a better description, compared to a lot of their other stuff. I mean, ironically, musically, it feels like some of Phil's later solo projects. I uh, totally agree. Oh, totally agree. Absolutely. Which is, which is, you know, considering he had nothing to do with the music. <laughs> It's kind of weird, but it does actually feel, you know, in places like a down record or something, um, musically, I mean. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's such a strange album. It's so hard to kind of get to grips with and put your finger on it. Yep. But this is a great track. Drag the Waters is, like I say, easily up there in like the top three tracks of the album, in my opinion. Um, well, and three for three with the, like one, two, three off the bat, all good, solid songs. True. I mean, like I said, Great Southern Train Kill is probably my least favorite of the three, but yeah, it's still, it's a good track still. Um, and I think they continue that one. Let's go to track four then, Tens. very Alice in Chains, um, you know, from the start, I feel like, on this song. Um, oh, yeah, I suppose, yeah. This is a lot of regret and self-loathing, you know, yeah, in oh, yeah. one song. <laughs> and and the, the tens, uh, I think, is a reference to the, like, amounts of heroin sort of thing. Um, but... I've I've read a couple different interpretations of that, but certainly like he there the lyrics that jump out at me on this one is long for the blur. We cannot dry much longer cement to dirt disgusted with my cheapness. Just like that whole hazy decline of what he was. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that, and I think also like this, this album talks, it's not just the drugs, but it's like what a debilitating injury does to someone. Right. Cause he was also, uh, it was, you know, this is also a couple of years after he'd, um, started having surgery on his back for, you know, he had like pro- really bad back problems and stuff, yeah. which, which obviously and, had not been helped by his tendency to leap around the stage in their well, early days. 
Right. And so that, that whole like body failing you start out with painkillers, you know, and then it goes from there sort of thing. But just, so yeah, there's this whole, um, just that, that whole like loss of self, right. Of yeah. Not only to the drugs, but just from like what, what you used to be. Well, and it was um, on, it was on the far beyond driven tour when they were touring that album that he had that famous overdose episode where mm-hmm. he, you know, allegedly was dead for two or three minutes or something, uh, before they got his heart moving again. Um, and I have to figure. I thought that it was this, on this one. No, let me see. No, I'm sure it was when they were doing the Far Beyond Driven uh, tour because that was when he, that was why the lyrics on this album were all about that addiction because it had already okay. got out of control. Um, and I'm sure that the lyrics to this song in particular, that especially the start, you know, my skin is cold, transfusion with somebody. Surely that's a reference to that particular episode. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I hadn't made the Alice in Chains connection to this track, but you're absolutely right, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I like it. Like, it's, for me, this is actually another top track on the album. It's it's menacing, it's atmospheric, it's dramatic. Yep. Some of some great lyrics and one of Phil's best performances on the album. Uh, a really good solo from Dime as well in this track. I think one of his best on the album. Um, yeah, I, I love this track, even though it is. <laughs> you know not not at all about a nice thing um but yeah as a as a piece of work i think it's great yeah uh track five then 13 steps to nowhere Which I think is about uh, how twelve-step programs, in his eyes, are a lie. Yeah, and the thirteenth step is relapse, and so thirteen steps to nowhere. Like, and kind of like giving yourself over to this program, and it turns out it didn't work. Um, yeah, that's what that's what I um, kind of take away from this, but. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, I, I read the lyrics the same way. Uh, it, it seems the obvious uh, read, doesn't it? You know, 12 steps and then becomes 13, as you say, which kind of wraps around again. Um, this is a really, my feelings about this track are complicated because it has some great parts. Like it's got a great intro. The drums and guitar intro is really good. The riff through the verses is good. The middle eight, I think is really great. Uh, especially with the changing tempo on the punctuating bars 
of the guitar at the end of the lines. Like the first one's yeah. fast, the next one is the same, but slower and with a different drum pattern. Really nice little details like that. But the it doesn't hang together for me as a whole song. And the the chorus, the so-called chorus, you know, if you can even call it that, is just not not good. It doesn't grab me, you know. Um, it's a shame because, like I said, there is, you know, the, the sort of swampy finish at the end as well. There's that word, yeah, uh, you know, which is a recurring theme, right? That yeah. you keep, you know, kind of seeing is the, which is interesting. You know, again, maybe it's due to the the lack of uh, sort of polish or or whatever, or but also like not knowing how to end the song, yeah. And, and that is a whole conversation about like. At what point in that creative, we know endings are hard from writing, right? I mean, yeah. endings oh, yeah. are hard. <laughs> and so, you know, in some cases it's like, well, we haven't really figured out how to end it. So let's just kind of not, um, you know, let's move on to the next one and maybe we'll figure it out somewhere around. But that definitely feels like a theme on this one. Yeah. But it, again, in this track, it's not just the ending, like the whole, this is definitely a track that I think could be a lot better if they had taking it apart and sort of, you know, put it back together yeah. with more of a songwriting head on, you know what I mean? Uh, cause like I say, it's got loads of really good elements, but for me, they just don't quite hang together as they should, which is a shame. Cause up until now, as you say, you know, every track on the album has been like at, le- at the very least has been pretty good. And some of them have been great. Um, and then this one lets it down a little, I think. Yeah. And, and again, it's track five, right? So it is that sort of middle kind of, place where you start to see things dip on a lot of albums but then i feel like they come back strong though oh, well absolutely yeah I, I was going to say the same thing i mean if anything it's 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 more of a shame because it leads into another great track in the album yeah which is track six suicide note part one to talk about these as two separate songs um but this one again very alice in chains and maybe even a little stone temple pilots here um very somber lots of despair in this song um this is where like there's a lyric here forever fooling free and using sliding down the slide that breaks a will and that to me is one of the most powerful 
lyrics on this entire album because that's and that's where I went to the whole like the breaking of Phil and Selmo mm. because it feels like he's talking about this whole the, this whole spiral just breaking everything that he had built himself into yeah. and um that is just heart wrenching yeah I mean you you're know, right that, the, that one line kind of encapsulates his lyrical theme on the whole album really doesn't sliding it? down the slide that breaks a will yeah like that and, and that to me also speaks so strongly to like debilitating injury as well right like there's uh, and and if you if you've had a sickness in your life if you had a you know major injury or something that that has just sort of taken you out of who you were being going through that and not being able to affect it is you know, and then to, and then throw drug addiction on top of that. I can only imagine, you know, like the just the the depths of despair uh, around that. And so, yeah, I mean, I feel like the song is. That's why I feel like these two songs are kind of the core of this whole album. But this one definitely is like brutal. Yeah, it really is. I, I'm dying to know if those are synths in the intro or if it's dime playing through lots of pedals and filters because oh, you, yeah. you also have what sound like sort of synthesized bass pads or maybe even strings or something under the uh under this acoustic part um and i keep listening to that and it's i mean it, they could be extremely heavily processed guitar and, and bass but they're processed to sound like synths and again you know you you spoke about the sort of the hypocrisy of uh, uh, of not wanting to make a sort of light or weak album, and then it's like, and this is the album where you're suddenly going to use synthesizers. Yeah, of all the albums, really, it's so strange. Which is why I think it they probably aren't. But like I say, they sound like it, even if they're not synths. They sound like they are. Um, yeah. Well, and to have a in some areas a sound that is reminiscent of bands that you are railing against. That's kind of what I mean. Yeah. It's yeah, uh, yeah very odd choice. But again, great song. I mean, what's great not to like song. about this? Yep. Um, especially not for a, me. not a lifter, not a not a lifter song. Uh, no, <laughs> no, but, but, no uh, but, but I'm you know that I'm a big Alice in Chains fan. Um, oh, absolutely, and, and I'm I'm also being an old Sabbath fan when they covered Planet Caravan on Far Beyond Driven. You know, I loved that cover. It's a really good cover. Um, I was actually annoyed on that album that they kind of felt the need to explain and apologize. I'm like, fuck that. It's Black Sabbath. You know, fucking apologize yeah. for covering Sabbath. Um, but they knew that some people would go like, what the fuck is this weak ass shit? You know, <laughs> because well, I'm the, victim of your own uh, persona. I was just going to say you know exactly I mean? because like, that's the sort of fans you that they had this. created precisely. So yeah. Yeah. And then they come out and do, yeah, this sort of thing. I feel like there's a lesson in fandom there that we could explore further in a different conversation. A lesson like, that I feel nobody ever seems to learn. <laughs> no, but you know, see comics, see games, see could, any form of any yeah. genre of writing, see, uh, yeah, and music for sure. It, it's like the bands who like go out and buy fucking helicopters because they think their success is going to last forever. Like nobody ever seems to learn. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you know, and then they're, yeah, then they're bankrupt within 18 months or something. Uh, yeah. I, I, although I've, I've spoken before and I'll, I'll bring it up again, uh, to their credit, Pantera, or at least the Abbott brothers weren't like that. 
Uh, like, I mean, they did, by all accounts, spend a lot of money on useless shit, um, but not beyond their means, to the best of my knowledge. And I've, I've mentioned before, there was an interview, and I think it was in Kerrang, where Vinnie Paul spoke very clearly about the sort of business side of things. He was, he was you know, the businessman in the band. And he was like, hey, look, you know, life of a professional musician is very short. You have a few years to earn as much money, you know, like he compared it to a professional sportsman, you know, or an athlete or something like a football player or whatever. And he said, you've got a few years to make as much money as you can. And then you're basically living off that money for the rest of your life. So uh, I'm never going to apologize for success and for trying to make as much money yep. as, as we can with Pantera right now. And I remember reading that thinking, A, he's absolutely fucking right. And B, good on you. You know, I yeah. wish more musicians spoke honestly about that sort of thing uh, to the press. But unfortunately, of course, if you're not already successful and you talk like that, you can get pilloried for it by the press, which is a real shame. Yeah. But yeah, as you say, you know, look at the monsters you created. Uh, you know, you you pandered to these sorts of fans and created this fan base. And then, yeah, when you want to do something that isn't War yep. Part 2... Uh, you have to kind of apologise for it in advance because you're afraid that it'll be taken the wrong way. It's not a good place to be in. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but a place that gets repeated over and over again. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm talking about not good places to be in. <laughs> Track seven is Suicide Note Part 2. I mean, is this the heaviest song on the album? Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, or at least, yeah, I, I agree. That that was my kind of first note on this thing. Uh, just powerful. The contrast of going from part one to part two is, like, we talk about how this album's like, not super polished or whatever, but this, this, these two songs and how they play off of one another are super tight in that way yeah i mean it's not cemetery gates you know it's not no uh, no <laughs> which I, know, I fucking love cemetery gates don't get me wrong uh you know that's not a knock on cemetery gates at all but that has a much more i suppose sort of fade to black style you know yeah organic movement between the the soft and the heavy this is just it's abrupt I mean, that's the only it's way the despair it. and rage, right? Yeah. It's the it's the whole like and and kind of not knowing what you're going to get from one moment to the next sort of thing. And and it is um, not necessarily shocking, but jolting for sure. Yeah. Jolt is a really good way of putting it. Like I say, it's the, the change is abrupt and it's not like in the middle of this song, they suddenly go back 
to the acoustic part from from part one. Uh, this is just heavy all the way through. I mean, there and, are some and slower to go parts. from like sliding down the slide that breaks a will, and then the first sentence out of this one is out of my mind, gun up to the mouth, like yeah. just the the absolute railing against this situation that you're in right in these fits of like fighting f- to, to just get out of it you know um yeah and just the 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 way he screams do you try to die and the riff behind that is just like or don't you try to die you, you know yeah. that sort of thing is like super powerful I actually, these are some of the chorus in this, I think, are some of his best lyrics. Don't you try to die like me. It's livid and it's lies and makes graves. That's that's good. Like, graves descending down. Yeah. Like, dude. That, that's, that's a good lyric, you know? Uh, especially, yep. well, it's a good lyric in the context of knowing, you know, that Phil obviously is talking from personal experience. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, some of the slower stuff on this is very groovy. Um, yeah. But it is it the whole the whole song musically and lyrically is just rage, as you say. It's kind of it's not even it's hard even to call it a song, um, because it's just an outburst, really. Uh, and it, it's okay, but if you just look at it purely as a song, I don't think it's one of the best. I don't think it really hangs together all that well. But no, and I don't. I can't even separate these two songs. But that's the part thing, one right? And part two. Yeah. As a contrast to part one, and taken in that context, and as I say, knowing if you do, you know, about the fact that Philly's this whole song is coming from a, a incredibly personal place, the most personal place, then you can't judge it just by itself as a song. Um, right. I mean, it's a nine-minute epic. Yeah. Between these two songs. And um, this is an, I do think this is another one that could be at least a minute shorter. I think part two, especially could be, you know, would actually be more effective, I think, and would be more brutal. If a minute shorter shorter. and combine it, you know, into one, because then you're talking about a seven and a half minute song, um, that, but I, and I also wonder, like, you know, I, I forget there was a conversation going on in our Facebook group, uh, over the past week about, um, some of the length of songs on Iron Maiden's new album, yeah. and uh, and you know, I'll just say what I've said before, which is that uh, Halloween should be the only band allowed to make a song ten minutes or longer. <laughs> um, and they did it again with the new album. That <laughs> a Skyfall song, I think, is is maybe the second song I've ever heard that should be that long. That's allowed to be that um, long. <laughs> that's allowed to be that long. You, you know, it's Halloween and it's that one, and that's it. Um, in the history of music, um, but. I wonder if, you know, this is the conventional wisdom of like, yeah, you can't do a a nine minute song. You got to chop it up into two songs, you know, and make it two separate songs on the album, as opposed to just having that be one combined song. It could be. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I agree. It was a weird decision because they're, I mean, they are so different that on the one hand it kind of merits it. And like I say, musically, it's not like part two makes any reference to part one or vice versa. Right. Um, But, but one stands alone better. But what? Right, and when you when, when you title them, that's the thing. Once you put the lyrics together and you call them the same thing, but part one and part two, well, then yeah, as you say, maybe then you should think about making it a single track. But yeah, either way, it is effectively a single track. Yeah. Um, well, let's move on to the next track, track eight, "Living Through Me, Hell's Wrath." <laughs> This 
Yeah, this one is brutal. Um, this, again, feels like a more traditional Pantera song to me. The bass line on this song is super thick, like yeah. just awesome. Um, and again, you get lyrics like drop the needle and stop what you're changing into. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty clear. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially as drop the needle obviously has that double meaning with, uh, with music. For sure. But, uh, but this one feels like, uh, him almost trying to psych himself up like to, to, to get it together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean this, I, I did, rec- I did read something about what these lyrics were about. And it is obviously about him. Um, but I think it was more a kind of, it was meant to be more of a warning saying to people like, don't do what I did. Don't, you don't want my life. You think you want my life, but you do not want my life. Um, right. Then that totally makes sense. Like in yeah. the chorus, like the, the riff during the chorus is awesome. It, it, um, this is another top song on the album for me. Musically. Uh, for sure. It's Agreed. great. It's the verse riff is great. You've got that groovy chorus with all the harmonics. Yeah. Um, even the, the little skit in the middle eight, which sort of, uh, I call it the mental breakdown skit. A hundred percent. It's great. The bass parts yeah. in that are, uh, are really good as well. It's yeah. Again, you know, lyrically it is not an easy song, but, but it's a good song. And, and the, one, another lyric that jumps out to me is I broke your mold, then threw away the craft, the cast. Hmm. Like I, to me, like just based on, and again, this is a lot of this is just my reading of of this particular thing, but it's almost like to me, in some ways, it was like the drugs speaking to him, and this idea of like you can't even get back to who you were, mm. like that mold is gone. Whatever you were before, you can't. No matter what happens, you can't even recapture that. Well, it's gone now. Part of that same uh, section of lyrics. It's amazing you're alive. Like that's yep. that's pretty plain. <laughs> yeah and and almost like that that's what you're gonna get you know like you, you're not gonna ever get back to what you were before that's gone now um so powerful stuff there but but within a a song that has like all the great ingredients of a great pantera song right exactly yeah musically as you say it is a bit more traditional pantera and it's it's just what you want especially actually after suicide note part two it is kind of for sure i think it's probably a good choice actually to run song that is a bit more what you expect from pantera after that because suicide no part two is not you know yes pantera very heavy and all that very loud but you didn't really expect songs like that from you know that's not what you would call a traditional pantera song um it's not what you've been trained to expect yeah exactly so so i think following that track with something like this something like living through me which is you say is much more what you do expect much more traditional. Uh, I think it was probably a wise choice actually. Again, reassuring saying like, Hey, we're still Pantera. Right. We're still here. Um, especially because then the next track again, kind of goes off in places where they haven't been before. So track nine is floods. Oh, guilty black. 
Yep, which very Alice in Chains again. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like this track a lot. I really like this track. I mean, I know it's a cliche for me. It's the longest track on the album. Ha ha, of course I'm going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize I am self-aware yeah. enough to recognize that, but... That's is, shocking. But it is a really good track. I mean, you come to it for Dime Solo. Um, yeah, it's like two songs in, in one, but... Um, but yeah, and this is the one where Rex was basically saying like they didn't even re-record his baseline. Yeah, like this. So that reading that and then listening again to this song gives you even more appreciation for like Rex just like doing his thing. Yeah, well, um, and also for uh, for Dime's ability to just yeah. you know to impro as well because that's a but I feel like long we, solo. Yes, and but I feel like with Dime, like it is universally acknowledged that he is a unique talent True. you know when it comes so like he nothing he's going to do is surprises you and and not that we don't know that rex is great as well but it's easy to get overlooked when you're talking about dime true i'll tell you what i read actually one of the articles i read was an interview with dime before this album was released uh but after it had been recorded if you like um uh-huh. with, with guitar world of all places and so obviously there's a lot of focus on gear but because he was talking to a guy from the guitar mag, it's actually quite candid. It's a pretty good interview, you know, and he's talking mostly musically about how they wrote the songs and stuff, obviously, but still it's, it's the sort of interview that isn't, wasn't that common with Dime. Cause you know, Dime didn't do an awful lot of the talking. It was mostly Phil and Vinny who spoke yeah. to the press for Pantera. Um, but having him, I mean, hearing him, or not hearing him, reading him, but you know what I mean, uh, talk in a way that feels, I wonder if maybe he felt more relaxed because he was talking to, hey, this guy's a guitar nerd like me, you know, so I can, I can get nerdy about guitars, which by all accounts, Dime was incredibly nerdy about guitars, uh, despite, you know, the sort of rocking image and what have you. Um, yeah, it's a go go and look for it. It's a really good interview. I thought, uh, especially as obviously that there are very few interviews with dime now sadly um well and again having lost him to have a song like this that is a little bit more improvisational mm. that is a little looser is a gift that you can go back and visit because we don't have them anymore yeah and so like the that's where the lack of polish i think um and for vinnie as well right and so you know that lack of polish that is throughout this album is also like it gives you something different than the other albums give you. Yeah. And so having that is a really cool thing to have, even though it may not stand out as the best album or it may not stand out as, um, you know, their strongest or whatever. Like it's, it is uh, unique. Right. Well, and it's still better than reinventing the steel, which apart from a couple couple of tracks really is not that great. (laughs) That's, that's way down there at the bottom of the list. Um, but yeah, as I say, I love this track. There's not really a lot to say. It is, as you say, the Alice in Chains right. influence is strong again. Although I didn't actually, thinking about it, weren't uh, Dime and Jerry Cantrell good friends? What? That's a great question. I'm I sure I remember something about Cantrell being like, you know, one of the main eulogists at Dime's funeral, that they were actually really good mates or something. Um but I'm going purely by my memory. And as we've already established, my old man memory is not <laughs> what it used yeah. to be. So I might be wrong. If any of our listeners know more about that, like, let us know in the comments uh, on I'm, Facebook. <laughs> I'm sure there definitely are. Uh, 
that have read more extensively on it than us, for sure. But if, if I'm remembering that correctly as well, I wonder how much that played. Because obviously at this point, I mean, by 96, was Lane still alive? In 96, I think he was, but he was probably in bad shape. Um, oh, yeah, no, he died in 2002. So, yes. So, But in 96, Alice in Chains would have been kind of riding high as well. Uh, yeah, it was a couple of years after they released Jar of Flies uh, and a year after they'd recorded Tripod, you know, the uh, the self-titled album. So, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, they would have been having a lot of success at this time as well. I wonder if, uh, again, we'll never know, I guess, but I wonder if, you know, he and uh, Jerry were an influence on each other during that period. Because that's Maybe the other something we can dig deeper on in our inevitable... Um, Alice in Chains episode. Alice yeah. in Chains episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Alice in Chains. <laughs> Which, are they now at the top of the list for... Pretty much, I think, yeah. yeah. Bands that people are like, how have they not done one of these albums yet? Well, and that self-titled album uh is a real um grind as well you know you want to talk about sort of anti-commercial albums after the success of dirt and jar of flies and right. Alice and james come back with the tripod album holy shit that's a real fucking dirge that is <laughs> anyway but enough about them uh let's move on to track 10 on this album the underground in america Another one with a real thick bass line um, and some real rawness to it as well. Mm. This I took to be kind of a another, uh, because this is the one where at the end he's screaming, the trend is dead, the trend is dead. It feels like, uh, and he says, give it five years, you'll retire your piercings. You must admit that you mimic the weaklings. And it feels like it's a whole like knock against what he perceives to be like tourists of a lifestyle yeah. where they're kind of dipping their toes in or again, following a trend, but not actually part of that. And, you know, like the, that that's kind of what I took away from it. Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. Cheap beer, trendy clicks, you know, uh, that's those sorts of lyrics. It, it, I think it's very clearly about that. I mean, this is in a, pre, in a previous album, this would have been the triumphal, song this would have been the song going like hey our fans are the best because those fans are yeah. weak you know um and as you say it just it doesn't come across <laughs> like that on this album it's not doesn't well, have that again, kind of feel good factor to it instead it feels 
sort of bitter. Uh, and yeah, it, it, bitter at, at maybe the success that some have, uh, you know, when they do follow those trends, or you know, but but it, but also like the irony of making this type of a statement, knowing the roots of this band, right, is yeah. also very interesting to me. Um, but again, like at this time, pre internet as we know it now that like we talked about i think in our in our pantera episode like most of us didn't know about pantera until cowboys from hell yeah oh absolutely so uh, so the uh, you know they were very much able to pretend that that part of their career didn't exist for a long time and it's really uh, i feel like it's only been in you know more recent years that people have dug deeper into the previous albums because you could find them online yeah um because they've never been re-released to my knowledge and i'm sure they never will be um yeah it was a, it was a lot easier to sort of to reinvent yourself in that way yes and, and even 100%. when the press knew about it like i remember i think it was after vulgar display you know the success of that the the power metal era was kind of quote-unquote rediscovered by the press and the worst stories in places like Karanga metal ham and going hey did you know look at this and they'd like you know print the cover of the power metal album and stuff and have a good laugh but even then if you weren't reading that press if you, right there was as you say there's no social media or anything you know the internet was still in its infancy or rather the web i should say was still in its infancy um so if you weren't clued in to the community in that way if you weren't really plugged in and committed to the news in that sense, you still wouldn't know even after it had been, as I say, quote unquote, you know, revealed by uh, the press, unless you were reading that press, it's not like it was going to be on the evening news, <laughs> you know, right. and the band were never going to mention it at their gigs. So yeah, if you weren't well plugged in in that way, you still wouldn't find out. And I'll also just say this to anybody who gets annoyed by me constantly bringing up the fact that they were a hair metal band. Like I, I love that, and I wish that they actually celebrated that more. It's like I've never seen that as a thing that they that I felt like they should want to hide. I understand why they did. I understand the the persona that they created, but I love that era of their music, and I think it's what makes their their transitional albums so unique. Mm. When you oh, look absolutely. at Cowboys and, and Vulgar Display and even um, you know Far Beyond Driven, I, I think we're as I mentioned before we're sort of out of that here. But um, I wish that was celebrated more. I but, wish more people did know about that and 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 had a chance to visit those albums. Yeah, you look at a song like Shattered on Cowboys from Hell, and it's you know so obviously paying homage to somebody like Judas Priest, but in yeah. a way that is also entirely at the time was entirely unique to Pantera. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I agree that, I mean, that's why I do rate, as I say, Cowboys from Hell is, I think, you know, one of their top three albums, no question. Um, because it's just unique. Even, even the imitators that came after it. A hundred percent. Didn't sound like that. And it's because they didn't, they didn't have those roots. They didn't have that grounding. Exactly. You know, when you yep. can call on it, it's that old adage about, you know, you've got to know the rules in order to break the rules. And they did know the rules because that yep. was the sort of band they were for several years until they did basically discovered blues <laughs> became, you know, <laughs> and almost single-handedly invented groove metal. Um, yeah. Yeah. Crazy stuff. It's wild. Anyway, Underground America, yeah, great riff, uh, good song, quite aggressive. 
Um, it's got a semitone step up in the verse that reminds me of Rise from Vulgar Display. Um, but only oh, a little yeah. bit. Only, it, I think it's the same chord change, that's why. Mm-hmm. It, otherwise, it, it's only the chord change that makes it sound the same. The lyrics and everything are different. Um, but that's the one where the chord change in Rise, it keeps going up until it reaches the chorus, whereas this kind of goes back down and alternates. But still, yeah, yeah, good song. Not one of the best on the album, but perfectly fine, I suppose. Um, and yeah, as you say, ends with the whole him screaming, the trend is dead, the trend is dead, uh, and then goes straight into, with no break, straight into track 11. Reprise, sandblasted skin. Yeah, I feel like this is uh, feels like a more straightforward Pantera song here, which is probably a good choice for the last track on the album. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I don't have a lot to say about this album. Uh, but sorry about this track. To be honest, it's like it's a it's a neat little song. It's yeah, sort of. I suppose from their you know from their fast era, like uh, fucking hostile or something. You know that kind of feels like it could have come from that era but there's just not a lot to it like the main no it's it, it to me it's like an insult to injury song like you got that from the last um it, it it's them uh kind of beating a dead horse in terms of theme right where it, it, it is again the the shaming of you know high it, which is what to me the irony here is even thicker because it feels like he's saying like make sure you really hide that trend that you were a part of that you're not anymore because you don't need it anymore. Make sure you, you know, sandblast yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, scrape it, grind it, peel it, hide it. That trend is over and gone forever. Like just this idea of like, um, bury that thing that you were for a short period of time, um, because you don't need it anymore. And him like shaming, you know, a, a band, let's say for doing that. And, to me, this is like the story of Pantera. So I just find it like interesting that that's at least again that's my reading of it. And obviously, I'm looking at this with a very different, you know, a very um, specific lens. But um, no, I, I yeah. think you I think you're bang on in terms of what these lyrics are about. But it's funny that you say that you talk about beating a dead horse lyrically because musically, it's doing the same thing. The riff, yeah. the riff here is an adaptation of the chorus from underground in America. It's the same riff just played slightly differently. Uh, yeah. Which I mean, sort of, I mean, they did call it reprise. So maybe yeah. Yeah, they can't be ignorant of that. I suppose that's how they acknowledge it. 
but to make an entire song <laughs> out of the chorus riff from a previous song, just such a strange choice. Um, yeah, it's fine. But it, 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 and I, the note that I um, made to myself is, uh, methinks the lady doth protest too much, is the right. note that I wrote to myself, you know, on here. Because again, this this feels like it's almost like the, you know, the, the sort of... Uh, metal kids who go on to get an accounting job right and you know they get rid of all their piercings and they hide their tattoos and they um and they become part of um you know polite society so to speak and him just kind of basically pointing the finger and saying you know you betrayed yourself uh, to do that but but that's what you do right and um it's just it, a, it's it, a damp squib this whole this track is unnecessary. I think that's what bothers me about it. Like it's a fine song as it stands, but imagine if this album ended with the previous track. Imagine if it ended with Phil sure. screaming, "The trend is dead. The trend is dead," and that was just how it ended. You know? Yeah. That would be such yep. a stronger ending because you get this. Like, say, it's fine. This is and almost everything. like, did you get it? Right, but then it fades out and you get like a minute (laughs) and a half fake ending gap, you know, the silent gap. And then you get like a 30-second reprise that doesn't do anything new and then just kind of ends. It's it's such a weird choice for a final track. But he's also like the last lyric is it's getting old, old, old. So he's repeating himself even at the last lyric. So so I think that kind of plays into the... I don't know. I, the I, don't, way that, I don't know whether that's whether they're self-aware enough to for that to be, you know, deliberate. Um, it's appropriate. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But whether it was deliberate, I don't know. Yeah. It's to say, it's, it's... Yeah. I, I think the album would have been but yeah, so I think much you're right. I mean, if you, ending it at... Yeah, ending it at 10 would have felt tighter. But again, the theme of this album is the exact opposite of that, right? Yes, yeah, so, true. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe um, lacking that last edit pass. Yeah. And yeah, and that's the end of the album. Um, but what a great album to revisit. And, Absolutely. And what a great chance to talk more about Pantera, who, you know, I mean, they have their detractors. There are plenty of people who do not like them, but as we've said about so many bands that we've covered on the show, you can't deny their influence. Like to the point where Rob Halford literally left Judas Priest because of Pantera. You know, ha- <laughs> that's, you look back in it now and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, you know, he left Judas Priest and formed fight because of Pantera's success. I mean, you want to talk about chasing trends. God. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy to look back on it now and and see the massive influence they had, and we just accept it because it's what happened in the nineties. In the nineties, metal became uh, first. First, it became grunge, then it became groove, and then it became new metal. And that's that's what metal was in the nineties. The mainstream of metal. I'm talking about. Obviously, there was plenty of underground stuff going on as well. Um, but the mainstream metal that was its journey through the nineties, and we just kind of yeah, you know, we look back on it now. And go, well, that's what it was. But for people like us who lived through it at the time, I remember the shockwaves that Pantera sent through the industry. Yeah. Were, you couldn't ignore them. It was, um, it was absolutely, yeah, unavoidable. Um, Yeah. And I think a lot of metal fans who had felt abandoned really, you know, grabbed onto Pantera. Yeah, it's like, oh, thank God, 
Because again, you know, who else was making music like this? And right. who, el- who else was this heavy, unapologetically it was in a bottle, heavy? For sure. Yeah. Um, for a band that had been around for over a decade before that. Right, but sure, it was <laughs> the, the reaction was lightning in a bottle, absolutely. Well, and like I say, it's unapologetically heavy as well. And actually, not, yeah. not even just unapologetic, but actually kind of deliberately, provocatively heavy. They were deliberately yeah. heavier than everyone else at that time and moving in the opposite direction. And yes, there are many things, and we've said many things about Pantera, and there will be many, many more things said about Pantera uh, by metal fans over the years. And you can talk about how contrived some of it may have been, but also it's worth remembering, again, you know, if you weren't necessarily there at the time, you might not realize this, but it's worth remembering that going in that direction at that time in the early to mid-90s was absolutely going against the grain. It was absolutely swimming upstream and not doing what you were quote unquote supposed to do as a metal band. Um, And yes, they became the trendsetters. Like I say, the mid nineties, suddenly Pantera were the trendsetters, but to get to that point, they had kicked against the bricks as it were. They were the rebels. They were the band doing things that other metal bands were not doing. And that, you know, that's worth commending. That's brave. Yeah. And I think, again, this album, you know, for me, it, as I mentioned, my trilogy is Power Metal Cowboys Vulgar Display, but I feel like this is essential listening if you are examining this band. Oh, yeah. Like, it's essential listening. Like, it's wherever it fits on your favorite, not favorite, you know, ranking of albums, like, um, for so many different reasons, the the rawness of it, the the state that it was recorded in, the state that Anselmo was in at this time, like the so many different reasons that it's it's essential listening. So um, yeah, I think a, a perfect subject for this show. Yeah. So yeah, thank you to everyone who nominated Pantera, and thank you specifically to Simon Lake, whose choice this was. It's uh, yeah, good episode. Yep. And that is. The end of volume five. That Unbelievable is, that we're here, huh? Yeah. I mean, what a journey. I know it's a cliche to say it. Everybody says it on reality TV, don't they? But what, <laughs> but, but it's true. What a journey this volume has been. We started with creator, Oof. uh, you know, and we came through what death clock and testament and fear factory machine head then towards the end. Um, yeah. You know how, what, what a crazy journey that's been. Uh, been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, we, and the, just the fact that we've ne- we're now through five volumes. Oh no, is oh, no. <laughs> wild. So absolutely wild. We we will. So uh, we will record another bonus track. As uh, yeah, there's no point like pretending that we whether we will or not. Of course, we're going to do it. We do it every volume now. So we are going to record a bonus track. Uh I have plans for that. I. So for the bonus track, I'm not going to say what, but and I'm not going to say too much because I don't want people to speculate too much, but it's a band that I will wager, Brian, you've never heard of. Okay. But if you had, you would be a big fan. Okay. I'm intrigued. <laughs> good, good. That was that was the hope. Uh, I'll say no more because like I say, I don't want people to speculate too much. And I certainly don't want people to guess until the, the episode comes out, but I, oh, no, I, I'm excited. I am confident that you're going to love it. Um, so yeah, we'll do that. And then we'll take, as we always do, take a couple of months off and then we will return with volume six. 
Uh, until then, remember that you can support this show uh, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thrash it out. All we ask is for a dollar per episode and we only charge you per episode. It's not like a monthly thing. You don't get charged unless we put an episode out. We are entirely supported by you out there listening to the show. We don't take ads. We don't have sponsors. We're not part of a podcast network, you know, proper to want to talk about authenticity, proper, authentic, underground, funded by the fans. That's what this show is. And uh, we thank you all who do support us for it. So thank you very much. So yeah, as I say, we'll be back with volume six, well, with a bonus track and then volume six. But until then, keep thrashing. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon. Ah! Uh-huh.